Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You dream of finding your ideal pet and giving them a good life. Purina wants that for you, too. Their pet finder platform matches animals with the right owners, and their pet foods offer excellent nutrition. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 29th. Today, a ruling on abortion rights, the rise of COVID cases throughout the U.S., and Mississippi votes to change its flag. What did the Supreme Court rule today? Well, it was a very big ruling for abortion rights. My name is Robert Barnes, and I cover the Supreme Court for The Washington Post. The court, on a five to four vote, struck down a Louisiana law that had required admitting privileges for doctors who perform abortions at nearby hospitals. Admitting privileges are very hard to obtain, and in Louisiana's case, that would have meant closing all but one abortion clinic in the state. And it seems like this was a decision that was one of the most anticipated from this whole session of the Supreme Court. I am worried. I would be lying if I said I'm not worried. I mean, we, especially since we're here at the Supreme Court, we're all uneasy. Um, The hearing on the case drew all sorts of people. And we think as the pro-life movement that, like, we need to stand up for women as much as we need to stand up for babies, too. Some of whom who even camped out on the sidewalk in front of the court for days in order to get in and hear the oral argument. We did pay line standers for a few hours. And I think that that's partially because... Coming out of Louisiana, it's really just an attempt to push this newly configured court. This was the first chance for this new court with two nominees by President Trump to look at this issue of abortion and the court's past jurisprudence on it. So tell me about where this case first started out. What was interesting about this case is that in 2016, the Supreme Court struck down a Texas law that is virtually identical to this law. It had the same admitting privileges requirement, and the court at that time found that that requirement did not provide any kind of medical help for a woman, that any woman who had a problem after an abortion, and those are very rare, hospitalizations very rare, would get that care no matter whether the doctor had admitting privileges or not. So when you say admitting privileges, like what exactly does that mean? Admitting privileges means that a doctor uh, can admit patients to a hospital on his or her own. And in the case of people who've had an abortion and then a complication, what everyone agrees is that she would be admitted to a hospital whether or not the doctor who had performed the procedure had those privileges. And so if this type of law had already been struck down in Texas, why was it that Louisiana was trying to do the same thing? Louisiana had passed its law. It had worked its way through the legal process. 
And a district judge had found that just as in the Texas case, uh, this didn't provide a benefit to the women and it would put a substantial burden in the way of women who wanted to get abortions in Louisiana. But a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit disagreed. It said that the facts were different on the ground in Louisiana than they were in Texas, and not incidentally, although the appeals court didn't say this, there was a new Supreme Court in place. In that 2016 decision, Justice Anthony M. Kennedy had been in the majority. He is no longer on the court and has been replaced by one of President Trump's nominees, Brett Kavanaugh. So once lawyers in this case got to the Supreme Court, how did each side argue? What was the case that they made for why this law should or should not stay in place? We'll hear argument this morning, case 18-13-23, June Medical Services versus Russo. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Well, the lawyers for the clinics said, this is an easy case. You've decided it just a few years ago. This case is about respect for the court's precedent. Just four years ago, the court held in Whole Women's Health that the Texas Admitting Privileges Law imposed an undue burden on women seeking abortions. And it said that under the court's doctrine of stare decisis, meaning that it stands by decisions already made, that the Louisiana law had to fall and that the Fifth Circuit had simply been wrong. The lawyers for Louisiana said, The state presented abundant evidence of how this case is different. No, facts are different on the ground here. The law is different, the facts are different, the regulatory structure is different, and the record is different. And all of those things dictated a different result. These doctors didn't try hard enough to get admitting privileges, and they appealed basically to a new court to say that that old precedent still allowed for Louisiana's law to stay in place. And so ultimately, what was the reasoning from the justices in the majority about why they believed the law needed to be struck down? Was it essentially that that argument from the people against it that, look, we've already decided this before, that this is essentially the same case all over again? Well, that was the most important part of this, and that came from Chief Justice John Roberts. It was a striking decision by him and a very interesting one. He had been a dissenter in the Texas case. He thought that the Texas law should be allowed to go into effect. But he said, we've already decided this case. And while I thought the Texas case was decided wrongly, um, we have to abide by the court's precedents. We have to treat cases that are alike just alike. And so he joined with the courts for liberals in striking down the law. That's a bitter disappointment for conservatives, by the way, who thought that with replacing Kennedy on the court with Kavanaugh, that there might be uh, five members of the court who were ready to reevaluate the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence. And with this vote, the chief justice has shown he's not ready to start doing that yet. And I remember that that was a big part of the discussion around Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings, that even though he was in some ways a very controversial nominee, that for a lot of conservatives, the the end point in their decision making was, look, if we get Kavanaugh onto the court, this will be a court that will consistently rule against abortion rights. And it seems like that's not actually the case now. 
Well, they got what they wanted with Kavanaugh. He was in dissent in this case, and so was Justice Gorsuch, the other nominee to the Supreme Court from President Trump. But uh, Roberts just was not ready to move the court that quickly, and especially on a case that was identical to one that the Supreme Court had decided in 2016. So for people in Louisiana who are affected by this and and people who are advocating for abortion rights in, in Louisiana, what have they said about this decision? Well, of course, they're happy uh, about the decision. Louisiana has passed more restrictions on abortion than any state in the country uh, over the last decade or so. And so I think that the abortion providers in that state feel a little uh, beleaguered. Uh, This was a big win for them. It also shows, though, you know, this is a five to four court. I think that they think, you know, this this was sort of the easiest case for them to win because they had a precedent from 2016 that was exactly on point, and uh, it would look, um, you know, it would look a little wrong for the Supreme Court to so quickly overturn uh, one of its own decisions. I think that uh, the abortion rights folks think that uh, some of these other restrictions that are coming along on abortions, there I think are 16 cases heading toward the Supreme Court that propose various restrictions on abortion. I think that they think those hold much more trouble for them. The abortion providers that I talked to, of course, they are so relieved. I mean, it would have been really, really tough to have to get admitting privileges for all abortion providers. This decision, while we're, you know, again, we're, we're really grateful. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like a major groundbreaking victory. Caroline Kitchener is a reporter for The Lily. It just doesn't because they already won it exactly four years ago. It doesn't seem to strengthen um, our ability to hold those kinds of restrictions off. So the first person that I talked to was Kwajalein Jackson, who's the executive director of the Feminist Women's Health Center in Atlanta, Georgia. There seems to be, you know, continued attention paid at the state level, mostly, um, at continuing to erode and find new ways to either restrict away or um, make so impossibly um, difficult that abortion access remains out of reach for so many people. So that, we anticipate, will continue. Even though this case was only about Louisiana and it only directly would have impacted Louisiana, you would have almost certainly seen state legislators across the country come January when they're back in session pass laws that look just like this one. Those creative ways to um, add additional barriers um, and keep access out of reach, we think will continue at the primarily at the state level. So I think the mood today is, um, and maybe I should just quote from from a clinic director that I talked to in North Dakota, who leads the only abortion clinic in North Dakota. You know, she said. There's still so much work to do. Our work continues. 
yes, she will tonight go on Zoom with a bunch of abortion providers from across the country and celebrate this. But she's focused on all of the restrictions that still do exist and will continue to come out of the North Dakota legislature. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. Caroline Kitchener is a reporter for The Lily. The United States is in a period where we were hoping to spend the summer months in a lull, in a low area, because everyone expects it to go back up again next winter, and that's not happening. In fact, we are at the highest level ever. My name is Lenny Bernstein, and I'm a health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post. Over the weekend, we passed the 10 million mark in worldwide infections and the half million mark in worldwide fatalities. In the United States, we have two and a half million infections since the pandemic began and about 125,000 deaths, unfortunately. Over the end of last week and this weekend, the United States hit daily records for several days in a row with more than 40,000 new infections nationally. And that is coming from the Sun Belt, the South and the West, where you are seeing cities like Houston and Phoenix and Miami having just dramatic spikes in the number of infections. That is largely due to them uh, moving to reopen more quickly than, than was probably advisable. Unfortunately, one change that we're seeing in the pandemic is that it is concentrated in multiple places at the same time. In March and April, it was basically the New York metropolitan area, a little bit of Connecticut, a little bit of New Jersey. We now have a pandemic that is breaking records in the United States by creating major outbreaks in several places at the same time. So what do we know about the circumstances where we're seeing these spikes happening? We know a lot of things. Uh, number one, these are states that relaxed their restrictions on social movement very early on. They wanted to restart their economies and they allowed people to come back out very early in their own respective outbreaks. So that means restaurants and bars and gatherings. They tried to ease back into them, but they did it too soon because they hadn't suppressed the virus enough to do that. Now we have younger people, 20s, 30s, who are going out and socializing. Everybody is sick of the lockdown and they are spreading the virus. As you know, a significant percentage of these people are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. And so other people don't even realize that they are getting the virus from them and the virus is circulating. And unfortunately, some of these young people are taking the virus back home to older people. And that's where we're going to see an inevitable rise in deaths probably two or three weeks from now. And even compared to the beginning of the pandemic or just a few months ago, we know a little bit more about the situations where transmission is most likely to happen. Are we seeing that reflected in the clusters that have come up in these states where the numbers are rising in terms of whether people are picking this up at, at public gatherings where it's a bunch of people, whether they're outside versus inside? What are some of the situations where we're seeing the most effective transmission? 
Yes, good question. So what we've learned over the course of the pandemic, over the first four or five months of the pandemic, is indoors is a lot worse than outdoors. No masks is a lot worse than masks. And hanging out together for large periods of time where your exhalations tend to sort of hang in the air, those three things cause transmission. And that tends to be what goes on in crowded bars and restaurants. And how much of these of this rise in numbers has to do with testing? Because we've heard the White House argue that, well, we're just testing more people than we were before, and that's why you're seeing this spike in numbers. It's unfair. We're doing so much testing, so much more than any other country. And to be honest with you, when you do more testing, you find more cases. And then they report our cases are through the roof. But other countries, many countries, don't even test of, with real quality outside of, you know, people that are very sick. So Is that a fair encapsulation of, of why we're seeing this recent rise? It is fair to say that's part of the story. You test more, you're going to uncover more cases. And the president and the vice president repeatedly say that. But it's like telling America only half the story because the positivity rate is also climbing and climbing very precipitously. So if I do 100 tests and I turn up 50 cases, it wouldn't be that high. And then I do 200 tests and I turn 100 cases. Well, of course, you can say that testing is part of that. But what if I do 200 tests and I turn up uh, 125 cases? Clearly, the positivity rate is going up. A greater percentage of that larger number of tests are positive. So we know the virus is circulating and we know that greater numbers of people are becoming infected. And have we seen any changes in the survival rate for COVID? Even if there are more people who are being infected now, are we seeing that doctors might have a better handle on how to treat people and make sure that they end up at least alive? Yes, we have. And that's good news. Doctors handle this better than they did at the beginning of the pandemic. Remember, it was a novel coronavirus named for a good reason. We didn't know anything about it. So doctors are doing a better job in handling these cases. More importantly right now is that we're seeing younger people getting infected. Older people were the leading edge of the pandemic. We had many people in their 70s and 80s at the beginning. Now we're seeing people in their 30s and 40s getting the disease in greater numbers and being hospitalized in greater numbers. As everybody knows, those folks don't tend to get the disease in as severe a fashion as older people. The symptoms are not as bad. They don't tend to die in the same numbers and they don't tend to get severe infections in the same numbers. So do we anticipate that this rise in infection rates will also result in a rise in the death count? Many experts do. Deaths are a lagging indicator in the pandemic. What that means is you tend to see a spike in the infection rate first, and then you, about three weeks later, you see a spike in the death rate. That's for a number of reasons. First, this is a disease in which people tend to take two or three or four weeks to die if they're going to die. So it's also because younger people go home, they infect older people, older people become sick, and then there's a delay because of that time lag. It takes, you know, four, five, six, seven days to develop the symptoms and then a number of weeks to die if unfortunately you are going to die. So yes, many experts expect that you will see the uh, number of deaths spike several weeks from now as a result of this very large increase in infections. 
And in those states where you've seen the biggest recent rise in in infections, how are officials there responding to that challenge? Well, thankfully, even the ones who rush to reopen have acknowledged that there is a big problem. It took a while. It took too long, in fact, because while this infection was spreading rapidly, uh, governors like DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas and Ducey in Arizona were saying, you know, we don't want to close back down. That is the very last resort. We're not shutting down. You know, we're going to go forward. You know, we should be trusting people to make good decisions. Um, You know, Floridians have shown they can do that uh, thus far, and I think that they'll continue to do it in the future. But as the numbers have escalated and their hospitals have reached close to capacity or in some cases capacity, they have acknowledged that there is a problem in their states. COVID-19 has taken a very swift and very dangerous turn in Texas over just the past few weeks. Now, one thing I said from the very beginning, and that is that Texas will follow data in making decisions about how we move forward. And with a positivity rate of over 10%, I declared early on, it would be an alarm bell for Texas to take action to rein in the spread of COVID-19. And that's exactly what we began to announce this past week. So they have responded by closing down the bars, by telling restaurants that instead of 75% of capacity, they have to limit to 50% of capacity. And in some places, like in California, Governor Newsom has reinstituted a stay-at-home order in some counties. Which feels like a real, like, this is why we can't have nice things moment, where Californians had a little bit of freedom and clearly were not able to deal with it safely and now have it taken away again. Uh, you know, this is this is a peculiar problem in America. You don't see this in Germany. You don't see this in South Korea where people are just as tired of the lockdown as we are, but they came out in a safe fashion. They wore their masks. The mask compliance rate in Hong Kong is something like 97%. In the United States, all you have to do is look at the video and you can see how many people in certain places are wearing their masks and not wearing their masks. And the mask has become politicized. The whole situation has become politicized, which is there's a group of people who are saying, you're not going to tell me what to do any longer. I'm going out. And I'm going to socialize and I may not wear a mask and I may not stand six feet away from the people I'm with. I have a breathing problem. My doctor would not let me wear a mask. So anyone harassing me to wear a mask, you guys are violating federal law. Do you get that? Get that on camera. That's a recipe for infection. For states where we saw the biggest numbers of of COVID infections early on in the pandemic, and I'm thinking about New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, how are they responding to the fact that now things have moved elsewhere and that all these other states are having their wave crash on them right now? What we have is almost a complete reversal of fortune here. When New York was the epicenter of the pandemic, it was so bad that their hospitals were overrun and other parts of the country were sending them ventilators and uh, sending them nurses and doctors and other personnel to help out with the emergency. They crushed the curve at considerable sacrifice to the people of those areas. And now those are some of the best places to be. New York's numbers, New Jersey's numbers, they're at historic lows. Washington, D.C. is doing very well. And now the 
authorities in those places are actually sending personnel and equipment and expertise to the Southwest and to the South. Now, the trick here is, will the New York metropolitan area remain on a slow, cautious approach to reopening, or will it say, well, we succeeded, and now we can send people back into the bars again? Because Arizona is a cautionary tale. When you do that, you have a problem. So it appears that that New York Governor Cuomo and uh, Mayor de Blasio are cognizant of this. And this July 6th reopening of indoor uh, restaurants and bars is being looked at with considerable caution. And I think it's worth pointing out that you're seeing some of these states like New York and New Jersey and Connecticut putting in travel advisories, basically, that they essentially are discouraging people from traveling from these worst hit states now to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut and places that are trying to get over what hit them. Yes. If you go there from one of the states that now has a very high infection rate, I think there are eight on the list right now, uh, you have to quarantine for 14 days. Now, how would they enforce that? Very difficult. If I drove into New Jersey from Arizona, it'd be pretty difficult to force me to quarantine for 14 days. But that is their policy. That is their advisory. So what are public health experts saying we need to do now to stop this from getting even worse and getting more out of control? You know, we as Americans tend to rely on the magic bullet. So everybody is looking forward to a vaccine There's going to be a vaccine. Hopefully that'll stop everything in its tracks or maybe a therapeutic will be developed so that if you get COVID-19, it won't be as bad or it won't be fatal. That hasn't happened and people should not count on it in the very near future. Even Dr. Fauci says at best, we might have a vaccine at the beginning of next year. So the advice hasn't really changed. It's wear your mask, keep away from people, stay home if you're vulnerable, limit your contact, That really is the best weapon that we have against the virus. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. And now, one more thing. Voting yes or yay. Barnett, Blackman, Blackwell, Blunt, Boy, Brian, Over the weekend, the Mississippi State Legislature took a vote that would have been hard to imagine a few years ago. By a vote of 37 to 14, the bill passes. They decided to remove the current Mississippi state flag, which displays the Confederate battle emblem. A commission will be established to design a new flag that will have to be approved by Mississippi voters. The governor has already said that he's planning to sign the bill into law this week. But the question is, what took them so long? I know that when when you walk into this building every day and you look at that podium, I would guess that a lot of you don't even see that flag in the right corner up there. There are some of us who notice it every time we walk in here. And it's not a good feeling. Before the vote on Saturday, State Representative Edward Blackman Jr. gave a speech on the floor of the House about why it was time for the flag to go. I've moved past the kind of feelings I had growing up and seeing that flag as it traveled through our neighborhoods and was not for good purpose. But now my kids are all adults. They've come up having to accept the fact that Mississippi has a flag that represents a history 
that's painful to them. They don't, they didn't experience it. They read about it. They studied it. Now I have grandkids who are asking questions about that flag. That's not a uniting issue there. Other members of the state legislature had argued against changing the state flag, saying that people would try to tear down the American flag next. But Blackman argued that what he wanted was for more people to be able to feel as proud of the state flag as they did of the American flag. When the color gods come through, we, we stand up and we salute that flag. But if you bring in our state flag now, there's no uniting song. There's no, there's no melodious tunes to that flag. It ought to be something that we all feel, feel a sense of pride that when we see it, we know that that's about us, not just some of us. After the governor signs the bill into law, the current flag will be removed from government buildings within 15 days. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 